How many of you ever got excited by the words, coming soon? Coming soon. Seems as if there's always something coming soon, right? Whether it's a new movie coming soon, the theaters, the latest Apple product coming soon to stores, lots of things promised to be coming soon. Some that excite us and others that concern us. Other times that, that phrase coming soon can be a concern to us. There are certain things promised to be coming soon that really serve more as a warning than an invitation. Bad weather can be promised to be coming soon. We've had our fair share of that, right? In February, layoffs, financial woes can be promised to be coming soon. When I was young and I was in trouble for acting up, my mom promised me that my father was coming home soon. And uh, that was meant to be a warning, right, to me. This promise of, of something coming soon is also seen in the Word of God as well. In the Old Testament, the prophets often reminded God's people of their, of their sinfulness and of the promise of God's coming judgment. That is, judgment was coming soon. The, the day of the Lord is coming soon. De death and destruction is coming soon. And they also promised that, that while judgment is coming soon, so is rescue and restoration, forgiveness and salvation for God's people. In the New Testament, we see this message continue with, with John the Baptist, the last true Old Testament prophet. He is sent by God to preach on man's sin and God's coming judgment and also to prepare the way for God's Messiah. And when God's Messiah comes, the Lord Jesus, He continues with this message. We have seen this already in our study through the Gospel of Luke, and we will see it repeated again today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 17. Luke 17, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 37 this morning. Jesus is traveling with His disciples to Jerusalem, and while on the road, He passes through towns and villages and instructs both religious leaders and disciples and potential disciples on a number of topics as he travels, on sin and judgment, salvation and discipleship, and one topic in particular that Jesus returns to again and again is the topic of the kingdom of God. This was a popular topic for many in his Jewish audience in this day. The Jewish people in Jesus' day were extremely interested in the kingdom of God throughout the Old Testament. God's people are promised the coming of God's man, God's Messiah, to usher in this kingdom. They were, they were interested in this subject and were, were longing for the fulfillment, were longing for the, the, the coming of the kingdom of God. The issue was that they had misunderstood the message about the kingdom of God. The Jewish religious leaders believed and taught that God's Messiah was going to come and be this 
powerful military leader and liberator. They believed that, that he would come in power and overthrow the oppressive rulers of their day and, and establish, reestablish a physical and earthly kingdom for the Jewish people right then and there. They believed he was coming to set up this, this earthly physical dynasty and make life good for them in the here and now and that they would share in his glory right then and there and, and share in his victory and reap all the benefits that would come with that. We have seen in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus shatters those expectations, but he, he points them towards something greater. He clears up these misconceptions by telling them he's not that kind of Messiah. And the kingdom that has come is not that kind of kingdom. It's better. It's better. He tells them that he has come to destroy an enemy. He has come to set the captives free, but the enemy is not the Romans. The enemy is sin and death. He has come to destroy the works of the devil, to break the chains of sin to rescue sinners from God's judgment and restore them to a right relationship with Himself. He has come to usher in a true and better kingdom, but not an earthly, physical kingdom to rule the nations, but a, a spiritual and heavenly kingdom to, to rule in the hearts and over the lives of all of those who forsake their sin and trust in Him. He has come to restore the repentant to God and condemn the hard-hearted and misguided who reject Him. When Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, that is what He had in mind. The doctrine of the kingdom of God in Scripture is the rule and reign of God in the hearts of and over the lives of His people. And the king of God's kingdom is the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is wherever Christ is king. That's it. It's His rule and His reign in our hearts and over our lives. That is why many religious leaders failed to see the kingdom. That's why many of them missed it. That's why only true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who forsake their way and fall at His feet, find it. Luke 17, 20-37. I want you to see several lessons from this text about God's kingdom. Number one, the unbelieving cannot see the kingdom of God. The unbelieving cannot see the kingdom of God. Look at verses 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In this text of Scripture, while, while Jesus is teaching on the topic of the kingdom of God, we see him address two different groups. This will help you in understanding this text. He's addressing two different groups, one at a time, about two different but related subjects. You follow me? First, he talks to the Pharisees about his first coming. Then, 
he talks to his disciples about his second coming and he speaks to both groups about the kingdom of God. That will really help you understand that, that this text if you understand that context. The religious leaders asked Jesus when the, kingdom of God, and when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus tells them, first, it's not coming in the way you expect, in a physical and tangible and earthly way, like we said earlier. They were looking for God's Messiah, again, to be this strong military leader who would overthrow wicked rulers in their day, set up a powerful earthly kingdom for them. Jesus tells those who hold to this belief that they have missed the point of God's plan and what is truly needed and will therefore miss out on the kingdom if they continue to hold to that. They did not need physical liberation. They needed spiritual transformation. They did not need deliverance from Roman rule, but rescue from sin and death and a restoration to God. That is the work that Christ came to accomplish. He tells them that the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed with the physical eye, not in a physical, tangible way where one can say, look, here it is, or, or, or there, there it is. No, they needed spiritual eyes to see this kingdom, and they were blind to it. They had eyes to see and ears to hear, then they would have known the kingdom of God had come. It had come. Jesus tells them that while there is a time coming when the kingdom of God will be fully and completely realized and experienced, it has really and truly come already in their day. He says, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. They're asking, when is the kingdom of God going to come? Jesus says, it has come. It is in your midst. Now the word translated in the midst of you is translated in some of your Bibles as within you. I, I don't like that translation. I like in your midst because Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. Obviously, the kingdom of God was not within them, right? It had not taken root in their heart and life, but was in the midst of them in the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is wherever the king of God's kingdom is found. Who's the king of God's kingdom? Jesus, right? Right there. Right there in their midst. Sadly, they, they failed to see Jesus for who He truly is. God's man. God's son. His Messiah. The King of God's kingdom. And as a result, they failed to believe on Him and follow, them, follow Him as their King. And they failed to see God's kingdom. And there are many today in the exact same boat. Jesus is in their midst ruling in the hearts of and over the lives of other believers. They, they are, they are, he's in their midst shining, shining brightly through Bible-believing churches, through the Word that's being shared and preached, but they cannot see Him. They cannot see the kingdom. Their eyes are blinded to the truth. Their eyes are set on a different king and a different kingdom altogether. Their hearts are set on the things of this world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. They're committed to serving the tiny 
kingdom of self, and they cannot see God in his kingdom. If this is you, my prayer for you this morning is that God would give you eyes to see and ears to hear this message. And he would give you eyes to see and ears to hear from his son, from his word. I pray that he would show you that he created you to live your life for him, to give your life to him and to serve him, but you have rebelled against him. And I pray you would see your sinfulness and your need for rescue and that you would respond to that revelation today in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way, by the way, you'll be able to see God's kingdom and experience the benefits of being His kingdom people if you would surrender your life to the King of God's kingdom, the Lord Jesus. So the unbelieving cannot see the kingdom. On the flip side of that, point number two, the believing cannot miss it. The believing cannot miss the kingdom of God. Look at verses 22 through 25. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So, while the Pharisees could not see the kingdom of God, Jesus tells his disciples and others after him, you cannot miss it. In verse 22, Jesus turns his focus away from the religious leaders and his first coming to his disciples and toward the topic of his second coming. He basically tells them in verse 22, there is coming a day when I will no longer be with you. And while you will long for my return and long for me to be with you again, you will not see it in the time you're wanting it. Jesus is getting ready to enter into Jerusalem and lay his life down to accomplish salvation for those who believe on him and while he will be raised on the third day and and spend time for a time with his disciples once again he will then ascend to the right hand of the father on high and he will not return to be with them again until an appointed time in the future and and jesus tells them you're going to desire to see me and be with me. They will, they will desire that time when the Son of Man returns, but will not see it. But, but when He does come to finalize the work He completed and completely restore His disciples and condemn His enemies, they will know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. They will clearly see His kingdom coming in glory. They will not be able to miss it. He, he tells them that many will come and try to deceive them into believing He is returned. They will say, look here or, or over there. Jesus says, reject that teaching. Do not follow those leaders. Boy, think about 
all the tragedy that could be prevented if people truly took Jesus' words to heart here. So many have been misled. Jesus' instruction here is important. He lets his disciples know. He lets us, his greater Christian audience, know that when he returns, it will be clear to everyone everywhere. It'll be unmistakable to Jesus' disciples. Look again in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Ever been in a lightning storm? You know it if you have been. You know who else does? Everybody around you. When the snow hit in February, you could call anybody all over the state of Texas. They would share with you the same story, right? Hey, it's snowing outside. Yeah, we know. This is how obvious it will be when Christ returns and His kingdom is fully realized. When will it happen? When will, when will Christ's return be? That we don't know. But what we, we do know, according to Jesus here in, in Luke 17, according to John in 1 John 3, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, it's on deck on deck. Look at verse 25. His focus returns to his first coming. Jesus says, first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. First, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. The Lord must go to Jerusalem and be betrayed and arrested and mocked and convicted and beaten and killed. On the third day, he will rise and then after this, after appearing to his disciples for many days, he will ascend to the right hand of the Father on high. After that, there is appointed a day when Christ will return. It could happen at any time. We don't know when it will happen, but we better be ready, right? We know that it will. Are you ready for his return? Or is his return going to happen at a time when you're unprepared? We don't know when he's coming, but we know that he's coming. Someday might be today, so we got to be ready. We got to be prepared for that day. Are you ready for that day? We know that because God is a merciful and gracious God, he has delayed his coming till close to the third watch of the night, we're told. But we know we're closer now than we've ever been before. Christ is returning someday soon, and that someday might be today, so we got to be ready. Are you ready? If not, I urge you, today, while today is today, right now, today, prepare yourself, ready yourself by forsaking your sin in placing your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Christ is coming at an hour we do not expect. It will take those in the world completely off guard. That's our next point. Next point Jesus makes, the world won't expect the kingdom of God. Won't expect His return. 
Look at verses 26 through 30. Very clear what Jesus is saying here. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus gives us insight into what this great and awesome and terrible day will be like when He returns for His bride and when He returns bringing judgment to His enemies. He uses two familiar stories. This should serve as a warning to you. Listen, these familiar stories, don't forget them. They, they show what an unexpected, an awful day this will be for unbelievers in the watching world. It'll be like it was in Noah's day. Think about what life was like outside of Noah's family before the flood hit. They were living it up. Living like they had a million days left to live. Going about life as usual. As if their lives would carry on forever. And then Noah and his family go up into the ark. It shut up. Then God's flood of judgment comes upon the earth. And no man or animal on the earth outside that boat were left. They were all swept away by God's flood of judgment. It didn't come without warning. Noah had warned those in his generation. They refused to listen. They paid the price. Same thing happened in, in Lot's day in Sodom and Gomorrah. The day Lot and his daughters left Sodom was like any other day for the people of Sodom. They continued to eat and drink and buy and sell and plant like any other day. Lot left, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven, destroyed them all. Jesus says in verse 30, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Same. Same. God's judgment is coming, not without warning, right? We've been warned. You're being warned this morning in this text of Scripture. We have been told by God clearly in His Word that He is coming in judgment, but He is coming at a time we do not expect. God's judgment is real. It's sure it's coming, but it's coming like a thief in the night. It'll be sudden. It will be quick. It will be unexpected. So we got to be ready. We got to be ready. We got to ready our families, friends, for this day. We must live ready, knowing that He is returning someday soon, and that someday might be today. Next truth the repentant and believing will find the kingdom and be saved. The repentant and believing will find the kingdom and be saved. Look at verses 31 through 33. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. 
Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus lets his disciples know that when he returns, he will gather those who are not following the course of this world, those who are looking to and trusting in and following hard after him, those who have, have not put their hand to the plow and have looked back, those who are, who are lovers of his and not lovers of the world. Those will be gathered to him. Jesus returns to the example of, of Lot in Sodom by calling on his hearers to remember Lot's wife. Those of you all who remember that story, you know her story well. She didn't even make it out of Sodom, did she? She looked back believing what was behind her was better than what was ahead of her. She became a pillar of salt. Those who love the world and are clinging to the things of this world and have refused to, to forsake the wicked ways of the worldly and surrender their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ will not escape the judgment to come. Remember Luke 9.62, Jesus said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What, what Jesus means is that the calling that he has placed on our lives to follow him is greater than any and everything else. It is to take priority over material possessions, over all earthly relationships. The call to follow Jesus is to be obeyed without excuse and without delay and without a second glance. Jesus makes it clear, you've got to get off the fence to follow me. I'm not going to allow you to stay there. You've got to get off the fence. You've got to forsake your way. You've got to fall before me as king. Not even family relationships are to trump loyalty to me and this calling. I am God. God in the flesh. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I am greater than any and every material possession. I am greater than your mother and father. I am greater than everything in this life. Do you believe that? You have to, to be his disciple. Does Christ have priority in your life? Is he the greatest thing in your life? What in your life is rivaling your relationship with the Lord? What in your life do you need to sacrifice on the altar in your service to the Lord Jesus? What are some obligations that stand in the way of you following Jesus and putting him first? You're going to be challenged in your study guide this week to, uh, to, make, a, to make a list of things that rival your relationship with the Lord. You're going to be asked to confess those things to God and ask for him to give you the grace and help that you need to put Christ first. Maybe you're here, you're, you're listening online, and you're thinking to yourself, everything really in my life takes precedent over Jesus because you've not given your life up and over to the Lord Jesus. I hope and pray again this morning that you see how important Jesus is. Jesus says this calling to follow him is 
greater than any and every earthly comfort, all human relationships greater than everything in life. Those who fail to see that will learn that lesson the hard way in the final judgment when he comes and they see him as he is. Look at verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus communicates two important truths here. First is that the one who seeks to save his life will lose it. Jesus tells his disciples that those who refuse to follow the path of the Messiah, those who refuse to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him, those who refuse to lay their lives down before him, give their lives up and over to him, will lose the lives they have. They have everything the world affords, everything they hunger for in this life, all their eyes covet, all their pride demands, long life, prosperity. They will have nothing because in the process of possessing those things, they will forfeit that which is most important, their very souls. Christ wants his disciples. He wants us to see that this life is brief. It's a blip. It's very, very brief. It will soon end, and all that matters is the life we live for Christ. Don't waste your life trying to preserve it. Instead, lose it in order to keep it. That's what Jesus is saying. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. One of the great paradoxes in, in Scripture, to save our life, we must lose it. True life, eternal life is found when we die to our wants, our will, our way, our desires, and lay our lives down before the Lord of glory. That is where, in fact, true and abundant life is found. True joy and lasting satisfaction. To, to save our life, we must lose it. True life, eternal life is found in Christ. Are we as Christ's disciples are required to carry a cross and lay our lives down? When we do that, we find that through that is life. Christ said, if you follow me, it'll cost you everything. But if you follow me, you will have in return everything. In me, you will receive life. True life, abundant life, eternal life in me and with me. The repentant and believing will find the kingdom and be saved. Last point, the resistant and unbelieving will miss the kingdom and be judged. Look at verses 34 through 37. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed, could be a reference to husband and wife or siblings. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Verse 37, and they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. 
before explaining this text, there are a few things that we need to discuss. First, you'll notice in some of your Bibles that verse 36 is missing from some of your Bibles. That's not a mistake, okay? Verse 36 is not found in some of the earliest autographs. Remember, I've told you before that when we talk about the Bible being without error, what we mean is it is without error in the original Greek and Hebrew autographs and in our Bibles insofar as they are consistent with the original, okay? Certain translations include verse 36 because they were using later manuscripts to translate. It's omitted from the earliest ones discovered. When you look at verse 36 in the King James, it's a simple additional illustration that doesn't add to or really take away from what is said in the rest of the passage here and what's said in verses 34 and 35. Jesus says that when he returns, there will be two in bed. One will be taken, the other left. In verse 35, you have two women working alongside one another, grinding grain in the mill. One will be taken and the other left. In the additional verse from the later translations in the King James, we're told two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Okay? See? Same idea. Doesn't add to or take away. Jesus is returning to this, this unexpected event of his second coming. The second question debated by scholars is who is who? Who's who? Who's the one taken and who's the one left? Because of the popular left behind books, some argue that Jesus' people are taken. But before you let fictional novels influence your theology here, take a close look at the text. I tell you, verse 34, in the night that there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken, and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? Meaning... Where will they be taken? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, if he's talking about his people gathered in glory, that is an odd illustration to use, right? Where are the people in glory going to be gathered? Well, where the, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. No, no, no. Who will be taken? Who will be left behind? In this text of Scripture, I believe the unrepentant sinner is the one who is taken. I believe we want to be the ones left behind in this passage of Scripture. For those of you all upset about that interpretation, if it causes you problems in your end times views, hear from a few theologians that hold to that view of the end times, okay, and what they have to say about this text of Scripture. John MacArthur, who probably holds to your view if you're upset, dispensational premillennialist, he says this of the passage, look at it. One will be taken, means taken in judgment, just as in Noah's day. This is clearly not a reference to the catching away of believers described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. DTS guys, Wolvert and Zook, in their Bible knowledge commentary, say this, look at this quote. Jesus stated that some will be taken into judgment. 
In some parts of the world, it will be nighttime. People will be in bed. In other parts, it'll be daytime. People will be doing daily tasks, such as grinding grain. The taking away means taken into judgment, not taken up in rapture. The ones left are those who will enter into the kingdom. We want to be left behind, according to this text of Scripture. Okay? Sorry if that messes up those series of books for you. All right. While it is difficult at times to differentiate who are with Jesus and who are not, who will be judged and who will be gathered in glory, it will be clear in that day. That's the point that Jesus is making. There are two types of people. Today, people are, are grouped together in all different types of ways. There are family, friends, grouped together by co-workers, neighbors, and that day it'll be obvious who is who and there will be in two groups those who are left and those who are taken. Those ripe for judgment will be clearly seen. Jesus says it will be obvious, as obvious as a corpse on the side of the road being devoured by vultures. It'll be a glorious day for those in Christ and a terrible day for those opposed to him, what side will you be on in that day? Have you sided with Jesus? Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Is Christ Lord of your life? He came to rule in your heart and rule over your life. He lived the life you and I failed to live, died the death we were supposed to die, and he offers us his righteous life in exchange for our sinful one by faith so that we can be restored, so that we can be made right with God through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Have you responded to Jesus today? I pray you would if you have not. Turn from your sin today. Deny yourself. Die to your wants your needs, your desires, give your life to Christ so that you may have life in Christ today and be saved. Let's pray together.